Amen, friends. All right, let's go. Last Sunday, we began a new series that's really um, kind, of, kind of piggybacking off of an old series that we started in 2019. I talked about this last week. 2019, we started this new thing. It was like this whole initiative we were so excited about. We're going to roll this thing out. And we actually preached a series on it, getting everybody pumped up and fired up. It's going to be amazing. And then 2020 happened. And uh, it all just, we just, I said, we can't. We can't. It's not, like, it's not worth it. It's not going to be effective. Everybody's scattered. It's going to be crazy. So we hit, we put, hit pause on it. And now we're coming back to it. And so all about what's called the path of flourishing. Path of Flourishing. And so la- last Sunday, I went back and I re-preached a lot of this stuff from 2019. This morning, we're going to do a little bit more of that, but then we're also going to move into, um, we're going to move into some new things this morning as well. And here, here's what it is, right? Last week, we talked about this idea that Jesus has life on offer. He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, right? He is the source of that life, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life, it's what I am. Um, he is the bread of life. He is, he is the living water. It's what has come to give us. And this is not, Jesus is not talking about kind of eternity. Yes, he came to give us eternity that we might live forever with him. But he's talking about right now, life, supernatural life, a fullness, a joy, a contentment, a satisfaction in him. That we would be a people who are filled, content, like just substance, right? Meaning and purpose, life. He came to give abundant life to his people. And yet last week we talked about this idea that for many of us, we are not experiencing that life. Many people would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian, or I'm not experiencing that life. Last week I asked the question, we did a, we did a kind of a, a poll in the room, said, how would you best describe your relationship with Jesus right now? Most of you, the vast majority of people in this room and at our 915 said, decent. Decent. It's okay. I wish it was better. I wish I was growing a little bit more, but no, it's okay, right? Decent. When I ask you, how would you describe the state of your soul right now? You said, the the, the overwhelming majority of people said, tired. It's tired. It's weary. That's how I feel. Not life. Not fullness, not flourishing, right? And so how do we walk this path of flourishing? How do we experience what Jesus has on offer for us? That's what this series is really all about. That's what we're going to get in today. I said this last week, and I want to read it for us so I make sure I get it exactly right. This is exactly what I said. I said, the primary reason we don't experience the flourishing that Jesus offers is because though we say we are Christians— We are not really disciples of Jesus. Let me say that again. This is where we're going today. Last week I said the primary reason we don't experience the flourishing that Jesus offers is because though we say we are Christians, we are not really disciples of Jesus. So this morning what I want to talk about is what does that mean to become a disciple of Jesus? And how does discipleship, the first thing I want to look at is how does discipleship to Jesus create flourishing. How does discipleship to Jesus create flourishing? When we say discipleship, we're going to talk more about this, but we're talking about emulating Jesus in every way, becoming just like him. And if Jesus is the source of human flourishing, if he's the source of this life, right, if that's what he came to give, if he, if he is the embodiment of it, if he is the picture of ultimate human flourishing, it would do us well to begin to emulate him, right? Just on a base level, we can agree. It's like, if, if that's true... Then emulating him, living like him, is going to begin to produce something different than if we do not live like him. 
right? It would do us well to begin to, to, to notice how he lives and what he does. However, in our culture, what we have done in kind of the Western church is that we've said, I mean, to emulate Jesus means that you do blank, fill in, fill in the blank, right? I, I'm a Christian because I go to church. Well, friends, Jesus didn't do that. He was Jewish. He didn't go to church, okay? He never did, never went to church, right? So that can't be it. I'm not saying don't go to church. I'm just saying that's not it. That doesn't make you a disciple, okay? You say, man, I'm a Christian because I read my Bible. Well, now, Jesus did read his, his Old Testament, right? He read, read the Torah and um, he read his Old Testament, but he didn't, he didn't read the New Testament. And my guess is that's where you spend most of your time. He didn't, he didn't read the New Testament because it didn't, didn't exist yet. I'm a Christian because I pray. I'm a Christian because I help people. I'm a Christian because I'm, right? All of these things that you do, right? I'm a Christian because I volunteer. I have a, I have a calling. I have this position of leadership. I have this title. That makes me a Christian. Well, that's not true, right? What you've done is you've created religion. You'd say, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a spiritual person. I'm a person of faith. And I follow the religion of Christianity. Now, that's true. That's true. You do all of those things, right? Because you go to church, because you read your Bible, because you pray, because you serve, because you volunteer. You're, you might be a spiritual person who follows the religion of Christianity, but you can't say, I'm a follower of Jesus because I do. We've created religion, not relationship. And discipleship to Jesus is all about relationship. And so as long as the marker of your faith is this list of things that you do, right, you, you have faith, but you have relig- faith in religion, you are not a disciple of Jesus. The goal of following is a flourishing relationship with Jesus, not a checklist. And if you say, I'm a follower of Jesus because I do whatever, fill in the blank, you're not following him. You're not following him. One of my great heroes, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a pastor and theologian, um, probably, probably for sure one of the greatest pastors and theologians, the greatest works written in the past hundred years within the church come from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, okay? It's a big statement, and I'll stand by it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was killed in, in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. Um, it, it, it just in a, an incredible, incredible, incredible man of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's most famous work is, of course, The Cost of Discipleship. And in it, he writes this. He says, Christianity without the living Christ is inevitably Christianity without discipleship. And Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. Now that first phrase, right, it sounds like he says the same thing twice, right? And he does, just in a different way. The first thing he says, right, Christianity without the living Christ is inevitably Christianity without discipleship. If you take the faith tradition of Christianity, the religion of Christianity, and you remove Christ from it, you have also removed discipleship. You cannot, have, you cannot have Christ without discipleship. It's not possible. It's not possible. And then he says the same thing, but he says it in a different way. He says that if you remove Christ from Christianity, or wait, is that, did I just say that? I'm getting this confused. Christianity, if you remove discipleship from, from Christianity, if you take out discipleship, okay, you've also removed Christ. And friends, let me tell you something. I believe this is what we've done. We've removed discipleship from Christianity, and therefore, inevitably, by, by law, we have removed Christ from Christianity. We've created followers of a religion, not followers of 
Jesus. He goes on to say, discipleship without Jesus is a way of our own choosing. Discipleship without Jesus is a way, like you, can, you can have discipleship, but if you take Jesus out, then you've just kind of created your own thing. You've created religion. I like this part of it, and so, but I don't like that part. Get rid of that. Uh, uh, ooh, I like this. Let's put that in there. Ugh, let's uh, get rid of that. All right, we've created our own thing. It's a way of your own choosing. Not the way of Jesus. It's a way of your own choosing. You've created your own religion. Discipleship without Jesus is your own, your own thing, your own religion. It may even lead to martyrdom, he says, but it is devoid of all promise. This is important, right? You've got to remember, Bonhoeffer, he's, he's in, he, he writes this, and la- later does die a martyr. He dies in a concentration camp, and he sees many other people die martyrs, not just Christians, right? You don't have to be a Christian to die a martyr, right? You die for what you believe in, you're a martyr. You die for deep belief, you're a martyr, right? And martyrdom does not equal right. Just because you died for something you believed in doesn't mean you were right in what you believed in, right? People who say that are crazy, right? It doesn't make any sense. Bonhoeffer sees people of all different religions die. The Nazis didn't care. They didn't care what you believed. They just cared that you believed in something. If you believe in something greater than the Nazi party, they're going to kill you for it. He saw all kinds of people die for their beliefs, martyrs for their beliefs. He says this, even if that's true, it's void of all promise. Whatever it was that you believed in, it was void of promise. The promise of life, abundant life, human flourishing. You died for something that wasn't real, wasn't there, wasn't genuine. You can't have it all. So my fear is, is that so many of us, even in this room, but for sure in our culture, we have stepped into Christianity, but we've never actually stepped into Christ. We do the things that our parents did or our grandparents we go through the motions, we do the thing that they've always done. We sign up, we serve, we give, we, whatever it is, right? Occasionally read our Bible, occasionally pray, but not really. We've stepped into Christianity, but we've never actually stepped into Christ. And there's a major difference between the two. We must be people who step into Christ. This is what discipleship is. Discipleship is a complete emulating of Jesus, What is a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to step into Jesus and to become a disciple? What does this look like? What does it look like to become a disciple of Jesus? What does this mean? What was was Jesus' job title? Anybody know? Don't say carpenter. What was Jesus' job title? What did he do? It's a rabbi. That's right. What's a rabbi? Teacher. Yes, rabbi does mean teacher, but it's more than just a teacher, right? It's more than just a teacher. Uh, rabbi is, is literally, it's, it, mean, it means master, right? It's, it's the master or, or great one, great one. This is what it really means, right? They, they have mastered a subject. They've mastered it. They've, they've kind of created their own category, right? So it's not like they're not teaching, they're not like a math teacher, nothing against math teachers. Math teachers are awesome. That's not what a rabbi is. The rabbi is the guru of this subject, right? They have mastered it. They've kind of developed their own school on it, right? And this is what they're teaching. They are the master of their own school, the rabbi. And in Jesus' day, the rabbis were massive, right? Every little boy wants to grow up to be a rabbi. And maybe more than that, every, every little boy's mama wants him to grow up to be a rabbi, 
but it's just not, it's just not realistic, right? It's like, it's like all the kids that are like, one day I'm going to be in the NBA. One day I'm going to be a major league baseball. No, you're not, right? Sa- same thing, right? It's just not, one day I'm going to be a famous movie star. Okay, yeah, maybe, but probably not, right? That's a rabbi, right? Every little Jewish boy and girl, or not every, but most Jewish boys and girls attended school. Starting around age four or five, they would go to what's called Beit Sefer. Beit Sefer was like a little elementary school where they'd learn how to read and write from four to five years old all the way to 12 years old, right? And they, they would learn to read and write just like our kids learn. Well, not just like our kids, but our kids are learning to read and write. My, my son Winston, he's uh, in first grade. He's learning to read and write, um, and he's, he has to read so many of these little books uh, every single week. Um, but the stories that Winston is reading, right, are stories of like fictional tales. They're like made up little things about like a dolphin or a whale or a horse that talks or does something, right? Um, it's a story about like a snowman that comes alive or whatever. There's all these like little fictional tales. That's how we keep kids engaged and we make them want to read because they like the story and, all, and it works. Often Winston gets excited because he got to read this new book and this new thing or he's now reading chapter books and he's excited because like, oh, at the end of the chapter, it's so good. He wants to move on to the next one, right? And it works, but not in Beit Sefer. That's not how it worked in ancient Israel or in first century Israel, rather. They, they would read through the Torah, and they would write the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, all day, every day. They, they, would, they would go to school, and they would read the first five books of the Old Testament, and they would write the first five books of the Old Testament. From the ages of 5 to 12, they would read and write, read and write, read and write, all the way through Genesis, all the way through Leviticus, all the way through Deuteronomy, all the way through Numbers, and do it all again and again and again and again and again. Don't forget Exodus, right? They would write, do it all. And by the time they're 12 years old, they'd have it all memorized. You could start reading in Genesis and they'd pick up right where you left off and from memory they could just keep on going right through the rest of the book. You could say, hey, I want you to write the book of Numbers and they would just write it out for you. And it would be almost perfect. Like they would, they would do it almost exactly right. They could do the whole thing. Listen, our 12-year-olds compared to those 12-year-olds, morons, okay? I'm just saying, you ask a 12-year-old right now to memorize the first five books of the Old Testament, good luck, good luck. Like, it's just, it's insane. It's crazy. But from there, that was kind of the end of it. They would just go home. They'd go home, and the, the women would go home, and they would get married at 12 years old, and then the, the men would go home, and they would begin to apprentice underneath their dad. Whatever their dad did, that's what they would do. Um, if their dad was a fisherman, they'd become fishermen. If their dad was a carpenter, they'd become carpenters. Whatever their dad did, like, that's what they would that's what they would do. But the cream of the crop, like the top of the top, the, the smartest kids would get to go to like basically college. It was called Beit Midrash. Beit Midrash, Beit Midrash is like uh, the upper echelon of society. Like you had to be really, really, really good, really smart in order to be invited to attend Beit Midrash. This is only boys. Sorry, ladies. Only boys uh, would attend Beit Midrash. And they would, they would go through the next few years, next three years of their life, they would go through Beit Midrash. And they would study and memorize the rest of the Old Testament, right? The, 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 the major prophets, the minor prophets, the poets, um, the Psalms. They would, they would um, memorize and study and write the rest of it. And then they would go home. And they would apprentice under dad. But these, these men would become kind of local leaders in their town, in, in their place where they live. They would become the leaders of the synagogue. They would be kind of almost, they'd be kind of apprentice to become like mayor of their community. This is a big deal, right? M- Mama would be proud if you made it to Beit Midrash and you graduated. Like that's, that's a big deal, okay? Not very many people got to do that. That's kind of the end. Except for a very, 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 very limited few. 
the best of the best, the smartest of the smartest, we have the opportunity to try out, to be tested by a rabbi, to become what's called a Talmudim. Talmudim is a disciple, a disciple of that rabbi, to be apprenticed under a rabbi. Now, you got to understand, the rabbis were the most famous people of the day. They're, they are, they're, they're like, they didn't have movie stars, they didn't have professional athletes, they didn't have singers and rock stars, they didn't have any of that. It was the rabbis. When the rabbis rolled into town, like, crowds gathered, hundreds of people, sometimes even thousands of people would gather just to listen to these rabbis talk. Like, this was it. There was nothing greater than a rabbi in, in this culture. That's what everybody wanted to be. And most of these Talmudim would never become rabbis, but, but they would get to study under a rabbi. For, for five years of their life, they would eat, sleep, breathe everything the rabbi did. There was a, there was a blessing uh, in first century Israel. It would say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May your life be so, so marked. May you be so close to this one that, that you would be covered in his dust. The dust that his feet kick up as he walks through, through the land, might you be covered in his dust. One scholar of um, ancient Israel put it this way. He said, they, they being these Talmudim, would literally follow in the dust of their rabbi, desiring to emulate him in all of his mannerisms. They would eat the same food in exactly the same way as their rabbi. They would go to sleep and wake up the same way as their rabbi. And more importantly, they would learn to study Torah and understanding God the exact same way as their rabbi. In everything the rabbi did, they would do the same thing. The goal of the Talmudim was not to be, impress anybody by being smart, right? They didn't want an A. They wanted to emulate. They wanted to be exactly like the rabbi in every way. Like these men would sit around and they would watch the rabbi and say, watch him eat his food. How many chews does he take before he swallows? I'm going to do the same thing. They would sit around, they'd watch him fall asleep. And they would say, I'm going to fall asleep in the same way. They would get up early and they'd watch him wake up. they say, I want to wake up the same way, right? What does he do? Does he brush his teeth first or does he go pee first? What does he do? I don't know, but I'm going to, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do the same thing. In the exact same way he wakes up, that's how I'm going to wake up, right? This doesn't make sense in our culture. It doesn't make sense, right? Because in our culture, in our day, right, millennials, and technically I am a millennial, um, millennials are like, I don't want to be like my boss. I, I have better ideas. I have new ideas. I want to do it my own way. I'm not going to do it. I, I think I can, could do this. I can do it better than my boss. I, like, nobody thought, no Talmudim ever thought that ever. The rabbi was it. The goal was not to do it better. The goal was perfect emulation. Perfect, identical, mirroring what they do. That is the top. I don't want better thoughts. I want his thoughts. I want to know exactly what he thinks and how he thinks about God and about the Torah. And I want to emulate that in every single way. That's what I want. There is nothing better than that. We've lost this in our culture. We've lost it. But we need to regain it, especially when it comes to Jesus. They would do this for five years. For five years. Friends, and that, that alone, I, when, when we talk about flourishing, we need to start thinking in years, not days or weeks or months. In our culture, we want it fast. We want it now. How do I get it? I want to, I want to experience this life now. It's going to take years of discipleship. We must become a Talmudine of Jesus. So what is a follower of Jesus? 
It's one who seeks this very level of intimacy with an emulation of Jesus, his Talmudim, his disciple. I want to be covered in the dust of Jesus. I want to be so close to him. I want to, I want to, I want to emulate him in every way. I want to watch and study every area of his life, and I want to be just like that. Jesus also called Talmudim, right? He called his own disciples to himself. And we don't, we don't see it this way, but this is exactly what's happening, right? Let me show you a couple of passages. And so this is Jesus calling um, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And then another set of brothers, uh, James and John. This comes from Matthew 4, 18 through 20. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me. Come be my Talmudim. Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, they saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending the nets. And he called them, and immediately they left their boats and their father and followed him, right? These men are becoming his Talmudim. Come and follow me. This is what the rabbi would say to, his, to, to these kind of Talmudim tryouts, right? Um, Beit Talmud was like the school of, that they would go to. And once they kind of are, have gone to this trial period, the rabbi would say, come follow me. Be my Talmudim. This is what Jesus is doing, right? In our cult, when we read that, we're like, wait a second, they just left their jobs? They let their dad, Peter's married, he like leaves his wife, he's like, hold on, honey, I'll be back. I don't know when, but I'll be back. Right? They, what are you doing? You can't, you can't just up and leave like that. But when the greatest rabbi who ever lived, I said earlier that rabbis would draw crowds of hundreds, maybe thousands, Jesus drew crowds of 10,000 plus regularly. Regularly. Because he did things that rabbis didn't do, like make the lame to walk and the blind to see. So when that rabbi says, come be my Talmudim, and you, you're, you basically flunked out, it, we, we say the disciples were dumb. That's not true. They weren't dumb, right? The, the, the men in the region of Galilee were, were very respected amongst kind of the nation of Israel, right? The, these are men who have for sure gone to Beit Sefer, uh, maybe even Beit Midrash, but now they're back. They're apprenticing under their dad, who was a fisherman. But they didn't, they didn't, make, they didn't make Beit Talmud. They, they didn't, they're not worthy of discipleship, right? They're, they're not worthy to become Talmudim. But this is what Jesus is offering them. This is an unbelievable lifetime offer opportunity. This is like a college dropout, and Elon Musk says, "Hey, come be CEO of Tesla." Like, come, come on. Like, who's gonna? Like, no, 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 I'm good, thanks. You know, yes, okay, I'm in. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm, I'm in. I'll, I'll come follow you. I'll mentor under you. Matthew does the same thing. This comes from uh, Matthew nine nine. He kind of writes himself into his own story. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And as Jesus reached, reclined at the table in his house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need for a physician but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire not mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call right the righteous, but sinners. Right? Matthew goes from a tax collector to a, to a Talmudim, 
of the greatest rabbi who has ever lived. This is insane, right? Matthew, a tax collector, this is like the lowest of the low in society. Nobody wants to be a tax collector. Tax collector is the dropout of all dropouts. It's like your mom is not proud of you. Right? She probably doesn't even talk to you. Right? That's just the reality of it. Matthew, they go back to Matthew's house and it's just more sinners and tax collectors sitting around. because that's, that's all his friends. That's all they are. Right? And Jesus says, you, come, come follow me. Friends, I don't know what you think of yourself, but in our culture, right, our culture says, man, if you, if you want to have it all, you want to have the, this life, this sweet, good life, you want to live the good life, you, you need to form a strong identity. You need to become a leader. You need, you need to become CEO. You need to have money. You need to have power. You need to have wealth. You need to, you need to be a good mom. You need to be a good dad. You need to flourish. Like, if you want to have flourishing, you better look good on Instagram. Jesus looks at Matthew who is a total reject, and says, come on, I'll give you that life. Come, follow me. Jesus does all the work for us. He shapes us. He molds us. He rescues us out of spiritual darkness and brings us into spiritual light. He showers us in his grace and his mercy. He transforms us from one degree of glory to another into his likeness and says, come, come follow me. I will produce the life in you because I'm the source of that life. It's not found or bought or acquired. It's in me. But for each one of these men, it required them forsaking something. I said at the beginning, so many of us have stepped into Christianity, but we've never actually stepped into Jesus because it requires us forsaking something, leaving something behind, saying, okay, I'm going to reject that identity that I've worked so hard to, to, to build up and say, that's actually not valuable. It's not worth it. I'm going to leave things behind or the, the identity that somebody's placed on me. You're not worthy. You're not good enough. You can't hack it. I reject that. I chase after Jesus. Bonhoeffer, again, in that word, cost of discipleship, put it this way. He says, so long as Levi, that's Matthew, right? Levi is his Hebraic name. As long as Levi sits at the receipt of custom, the tax collector's booth, and Peter at his nets, they could both pursue their trade honestly and dutifully, and they might both enjoy religious experiences old and new. That's important. They can, they can be good sons. They can be good tax collectors. They can be good fishermen. They can go about their lives. And they might even, they might even enjoy religious experiences. It's true. But if they want to believe in God, if they want to actually believe in God, the only way is to follow his incarnate son. Had Levi stated his post, Jesus might have been his present help in trouble, but not the Lord of his whole life. It would not have happened. He would have stepped into religion. He would have called himself maybe a Christian. But Jesus would not have been the Lord of his whole life. And he wouldn't actually believe that God is who he says he is. Because when the God of all things steps into time and he looks at you, you who do not deserve it, you who are as bad as a tax collector or if not worse, and says, come on, follow me, walk in my dust, emulate my life, right? If you actually believe he is who he says he is, how do you say no to that? You don't. You don't. If you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, you say, that's the rest of my life right there. I'm ruined for anything less but to follow in the dust of my rabbi. Following means we reorder our whole lives around the way of Jesus. 
our whole lives. And the sweet news is everybody's welcome, right? Jesus calls his disciples, he says, come follow me, but then he tells them to go and call everybody else to come and follow him, right? This is the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18. You know it, but I'm going to read it for you anyways. It reads this way. And Jesus came to them, his Talmudim, and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make more Talmudim of all nations. Everyone, everywhere is welcome to come and follow me, to partake in me, to study me, to emulate me, to love me, and to, to carry my way into every corner of their life. Of all nations, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their social economics, regardless of what they look like, regardless of, of, of where they've been, they're welcome. Come, follow me. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go make disciples, right? Matthew 2.0, to make disciples. This idea in, in the Greek of it's a process, right? We, we've jacked this up as a process. It's all written right there. It's, like, it's right there for us. It's a process. It's a process of conversion, right, where we surrender all to the one who holds all authority in heaven and earth. I hold no authority. I thought I did, but I was wrong. I'm a sinner, and I need grace. I need the mercy of Christ. I thought I had all this stuff, but I realized that is meaningless. It's rubbish in comparison to knowing him, and so I forsake it all in order to know him. I believe fully in God. I believe that Jesus is who he says he was, is that he came to rescue and redeem me. I've been purchased with his blood. It's by blood, not merit, that I'm saved and rescued and redeemed. I'm converted. I'm a converted one. But from there, it's disciple, baptism, right? From conversion to baptism, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Wait, this is the marking off of a new disciple. This cleansing by the, by the blood of Christ, this death to the old life. I'm buried with Christ, but I'm risen a new life. The old is gone, the new has come. I am now a new creation in Christ. I am a Talmudim. I'm his disciple. I'm a follower of Jesus. And the rest of my life, from this moment on, the moment we come out of the water, is his. Death to my old life. That was me, my own little kingdom, my, my, little, my, my little dominion of darkness. I'm raised a new life, and now I belong to the King of Kings. I am his Talmudim. I'm his disciple. From that on, I'm going to emulate my life after him. I'm going to become like him. And then we join a local community. We join a church, a local community of Talmudim, of other disciples, because we realize we can't do this alone. Our culture says, you're good. You're all alone. Well, I don't need anybody. Yeah, but listen, but your marriage. No, 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 I know, but it's fine. Oh, we're gone. Yeah, but I know you, you just lost this loved one. I know, but it's, it's okay. Everything is fine. We're fine. Everything's fine, right? I got me. I got my Bible. We're good. No, that's not true. It's not how Jesus did it. He never didn't do this alone. He didn't tell his disciples to go out. When he sent his, out his disciples, he sent them out in pairs. Everywhere he went, he had his disciples with him. And even, even in the most intense moments of his life, he always had the three, Peter, James, and John, like right at his hip. Like, you boys are with me. You are my Talmudim. You're going to emulate me in the hardest moments of my life. You're going to watch what I do, and you're going to do the same thing. You can't do this alone. You weren't designed to do it alone. You're designed to do it with him and with each other. We need community in order to do this. This is why, why being marked off through baptism within a local church is so incredibly important to our discipleship to Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. Who's doing the best job of this? Like when you think about the world today, like what, what person, 
what organization, what group, who's doing the best job of making disciples? Who's doing a good job of that? What do you guys think? Okay, okay, Jesus. It's always a safe Sunday answer. Anybody else want to take a risk? Come on. Who's doing a good job of it? Nobody? Okay, missionaries. There we go. Now we're getting someplace. Who else? The electricians. Let's think about that. Disciples. Okay. I would argue that the, who's doing the best job of it in our world today is culture itself. But they're not discipling us to Jesus. They're discipling us away from Jesus. And they're doing a really, 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 really good job of it. Like a killer job. They, they're, they're discipling us away from Jesus. They're, they're doing the best job of formation. And I would dare say spiritual formation in the world today. Right? And they're doing a really, really, really good job of it. John Tyson, who was a pastor in New York City, he's, he kind of gives these a the few different examples. He says, culture is discipling us from, from faith to doubt. Right? Not that doubt is necessarily bad. Go ahead. Wrestle challenge, explore faith, ask your questions, but you must come to the place where you make a decision. Yes, I'm in, or no, I'm not, right? To, to, to celebrate skepticism and say skepticism is question everything, right? Don't trust anybody, right? That's, that's the way that our culture says to live. No, nobody has the truth. There's no such thing as truth. You have the truth. You have your own truth. That's true for you. That's not true. Let me break. We know that's not true. That's ridiculous. But that's what culture wants us to believe. From love to insecurity, Jesus calls us to love our neighbors, to, to even love our enemies. But culture says, don't trust anybody. Don't trust them. Don't trust them based on the color of their skin. Don't trust them based on where they live. Don't trust them on their political views. Don't trust them on what they believe. Don't trust anybody. You can't trust anybody. Somebody knocks on the door. You don't answer anymore. We put up signs. Don't solicit here, man. I, I, can't, I don't trust anybody. Leave me alone. Which also leads us to the next one, community to individualism. Right? Community individualism, I don't need anybody, right? Jesus says, man, you need community. We already talked about it a little bit, but you need community. But we say, no, I don't need anybody. I'm an American. Pick myself up by the bootstraps. I get it done. Man, I don't need anybody. I'm good. How are you? Fine. You're not fine. From contributing to consuming. From people who say, man, I want my community to flourish. I want my church to flourish. I want my neighborhood to flourish. I want my city to flourish. I want everybody around me to become, tell me the name of Jesus. I want them to flourish. I want them to experience it. To so like, then I just want me to flourish. Give me, 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 give me. I want to consume. And finally, from rest to exhaustion, culture, culture says, you want to be full? Here it is. Eat this, eat this, eat this, eat this, eat this, right? And we just like, we consume it all. More products, more stuff, more, more things, right? I need more, I need more, I need more. And, but there's no rest there. It's just exhaustion. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and I'll give you rest. But this is not what we find in our culture. We said it last week, right? Culture's constantly eating, but they're never full. Their soul is still hungry. They're stuffed to the gills. With new stuff, new things, new this, new that. All these things that are promised to satisfy. And yet it leaves us hungry. You cannot do this alone. 
You can't do it alone. And here's the beauty. Here's the beauty of 2020, right? We've, we've like made fun of 2020. We've talked about how horrible 2020 was. And it was, it was crazy. But here's the beauty of it. There's, there's beauty in it. In the past year, you have kind of been forced to kind of hit a natural reset button on your life. To kind of remove a bunch of things. Like I can't, okay, these commitments are all gone because I can't show up. I can't go to this board meeting. I can't participate in this activity. My kids can't play these sports, right? Baseball's canceled. Like it's crazy. It was a crazy year. But right now we are re-emerging from this. And it's exciting, right? Lagoon's packed. Everybody's like, let's go outside and play, baby. It's amazing, right? But we're re-emerging from this. And now all of a sudden you're getting emails and phone calls. Hey, are your kids going to do the sport again? Hey, are you going to sign up and, and be a part of this club again? Are, are you going to jump back on this hobby again? Are, are you going right? to, all of a sudden, all of those things are coming rushing back in. And you have the opportunity right now to say, actually, no. I'm going to focus on becoming a Talmudim. I'm going to focus on becoming a disciple of Jesus. I'm going to spend the summer of 2021. I'm going to spend the rest of the year maybe even the next few years, giving my life to becoming a disciple of Jesus. And so I need to clear some time for that. And so I'm going to say no to these things that just don't matter. They just don't matter. Here at Flourishing Grace, we're, we're, we're sensitive to this. We see what's going on. And so we're rolling out something brand new to kind of help you, right? Um, we're rolling out what we call path groups. Path groups. Um, path groups are simply this. Small, tiny little groups of just two to five men or two to five women, so they're same sex, same gender groups, um, that gather together uh, regularly for about an hour to practice the path of flourishing together. Path groups are the answer to the question, what does discipleship look like at Flourishing Grace? What does discipleship look like at Flourishing Grace? How are we, how are we, how are we forming our people? Path groups is the answer to this question. They gather together to kind of really walk through kind of these four things. We kind of created this little acronym, PATH, right? P, prayer, right? They gather together to pray for each other and to pray for one, right? Who's your one? How's it going? Have you talked to them? Are you, are you stepping out in boldness? How can we be praying for them? Let's pray together for one. Let's prayer, right? A, P-A, P-A, A is for accountability, right? I, I want to be covered in the dust of my rabbi. And here are the things in my life that I'm clinging to or that are clinging to me that are keeping me from him. I need accountability to those things. These could be good things, right? Like my job is, I'm just too, too busy. My kids are in too many sports. I got too much going on. Like it could be genuinely sinful things. I'm wrestling with these sins. I can't, I can't seem to get it out of my life. I need accountability. I want to be attached to Jesus in every way. So P-A-T. T is for teaching, right? We read the word. We're all in the same Bible reading plan, reading the word together, right? But then we come prepared to teach it's a different person every time. There's no leader to these groups. It's just a group of men who say, I'm passionate about following Jesus. Or a group of women who say, I want to emulate Jesus in every area of my life. I know not everybody in the room this morning says that that's true, right? I, it's not everybody in the room, not even everybody watching online is going to say, yes, I want to emulate Jesus. And I want to give my life to that. That's okay. But for those who, who do, path groups is what we have for you teaching. So each person, each week, a different person comes prepared to teach, to say, here's what I've been reading this week in our shared Bible reading plan. They, they teach it. This is what stood out to me. Let me share it with you, right? A few minutes teaching. So P-A-T and then H is habits, right? Also known as kind of spiritual disciplines. Walking through these ancient practices of the church, saying, man, let's put this into practice. Let's grow in our discipline before the Lord, right? And so, so, so Bible reading, 
and study to prayer, to fasting, to silence and solitude. All year long, every month, we're going to be rolling out a new habit that you can kind of take your path group and say, hey, let's practice this together. Let's, let's implement this way of Jesus into our group. Let's study his life. Let's become like Jesus, right? And so here's my encouragement to you. Some of you are like, okay, all right. That sounds like all of this, I'm in. I want to become a Talmudin. I, I don't want to just be a Christian. I don't want to step into Christianity. I want to step into Jesus. And I realize that I need people in my life to do that. How do I do this? Simple. Just go do it. Just go do it. You cannot, we want to resource with you. We want to push all the resources across the table. But you cannot just sit back and expect to be fed. you got to get after it. you got to follow him. And so who in the room do you know that also wants it? Who in your life would you say, I know this person who is hungry for more of Jesus. Call them. Grab them right now, right after the gathering, and say, hey, you, would you want to try that with me? I don't know, maybe, maybe just try it for a month. We'll just, we'll just hang out. We'll, we'll kind of begin to practice this path of flourishing together. We'll, we'll jump into this and just see, what, see what happens. We'll, let's just do it for the summer. What does it look like for us to practice the path of flourishing together? On our website, flourishinggrace.org slash path, we have a ton of resources for you, okay? All kinds of resources uh, on how to start a path group, what a path group is, Right? Well, next week we have these bookmarks. They're supposed to be here today, but, you know, printers, they ran late. Uh, these little bookmarks that on one side have the P-A-T-H, right? Here's how you can structure an hour of your time. On the other side has questions in each one of those categories that we can ask each other and wrestle with a little bit more. You can find a digital version of that on our website and begin to explore a path group with either one person or three people or four people. I would limit it to no more than five. As you begin to grow past five, you reduce the effectiveness of discipleship, okay? As you begin to grow past five, you're going to reduce the effectiveness of being able to, to walk in prayer and accountability and teaching and habits together. And so we're saying limit it to five. Who, who are the one, two, three, four people in your life that you would say, hey, you want to you try this together? You want to practice this ancient way of following Jesus, becoming his Talmudim. I want to give my life to that. So let's, let's do it. I'm going to challenge you this morning to consider that, to become, actually step into Jesus, to become a disciple of Christ and begin to walk the path of flourishing, to experience, to find the life that he actually has on offer for us. Let me pray for you guys. Father, we come before you. And I know we have been, we've been duped We've been tricked, we've been fooled by Satan to, to, to busy our lives with all these things that we think make us a Christian. But there's only one thing that makes us a Christian, that's Jesus. Jesus alone. So would you help us this morning to come to that realization, to surrender what maybe we've believed since we were kids or what our parents believed. So, man, I just want to follow Jesus. I want my life to be marked by him. I want to emulate him. I want to study him. I want to live the way he lived. I want to do what he did. I want to help other people do the same. Would you change the culture of flourishing grace? Would you lead us into paths of greater flourishing? Would you help us to experience the life that you have on offer? 
If you help us this morning to acknowledge that that cannot happen alone. It will never happen in isolation. So would you give us the boldness to, to reach across the aisle, to reach out to a friend and say, would you do this with me? Help us. We need you in order to become like you. These things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, friends. We're going to stand. We're gonna...